Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be looking at innovation and the power of cause. Why it's important for everyone in your company to know exactly what your cause is. Why we fear living insubstantial lives more than we fear dying. And why it still pays to be a little nuts in the airline industry. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Dr. Kevin Freiberg, who along with his wife, Jackie, has written numerous books about how some of the world's most successful companies build cultures that thrive on innovation. Their most recent book, Do Something Now, Be the One Who Makes Something Happen, came out in June of this year, and the couple are now working on their next book, Company with a Cause, Live an Insanely Great Life While Doing Meaningful Work. In addition to being best-selling authors, the couple are sought-after speakers on the subjects of innovation, execution, and corporate leadership development. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Freiberg. Hey, great to be with you, Will. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's start off the podcast by talking a little bit about the word cause, just to be sure it's clearly defined and understood. Because I think oftentimes people think of the word cause and they think of something that's akin to charity. So how would you define corporate cause? Well, it's a great, it's a great question. I would tell you it's, it's the ultimate why. Uh, why do we exist as a company? Why should we exist as a company? And why is the world better because of us? And if we were to be wiped off the face of the earth tomorrow, would we be missed? Are we bringing something of value to the world that enriches people's lives and makes the world better, that if we were gone tomorrow, you know, we would, we would be missed? Uh, so that's one way to define a cause. I think another way is uh, to say that you are trying to solve a problem that really matters. And by really matters, I mean it's a problem that, um, you know, if you could solve or believed you could solve, you would dedicate your life to. You would, you would be willing to give the totality of who you are, the, all the gifts and talents that you bring to the workplace, and let her rip on solving this this problem you know just a couple examples of this if you if you look at Medtronic which is one of the great medical device manufacturers uh, in the world today they would tell you that their heroic noble cause is to restore people to full life and health well man I'll tell you what if you look at the devices they create and the, the, the medication pumps and the things that alleviate um, you know, all kinds of medical issues, they'd be missed. You know, Google said, you know what, we're in business to organize organize the world's information and make it easily accessible and useful. Well, I don't know about you, but <laughs> if we wiped Google off the face of the earth today, I, I'd pretty much miss them because they are essential to what I do every day. I just did a piece of work for Vail Resorts. Vail Resorts is the largest ski company in the world now. Uh, they own Vail, but they own Breckenridge, they own Keystone, they own many mountains in the Midwest and um, the canyons out in Park City and now Park City Ski Resort. Mm -hmm. Their heroic noble cause is to give people an experience of a lifetime. Well, think about that. If I'm a lifty loading lifts, loading people on the lifts, right? 
and I do that every day, that work can get kind of boring and monotonous. But if I really believe, hey, every time I board somebody on a chair, and this may be the one vacation they get every year, my job in the three seconds I get with them is to create the experience of a lifetime. And maybe I get to do that times five with the same family scheme, the same run. All of a sudden, my work takes on something that is bigger than just doing a job and is worth fighting for. And that's what we call a cause. Okay, great. And what are some of the ways that you think a widespread understanding of a company's cause with its rank-and-file employees can make that company's employees more innovative? Well, I think, first of all, you know, when you deeply believe in what you're doing, when you believe that the products or the services or the experiences that you're bringing to market uh, have great social value, have great opportunity to enrich people's lives, then I think from an innovation point of view, you settle for nothing less than elegance. What does that mean? It means that you, you push past, when you're trying to solve a problem, you push past the first, easiest, most obvious answer to a, to a more elegant answer. Uh, and by the way, uh, you know, when you think about innovation, an answer that makes it really hard for your competitors to replicate. Uh, I think when people believe that they're fighting for a cause and solving a problem that matters, they reach beyond customer expectations. They reach beyond what seems impossible. You know, uh, I suppose you've heard this before, but, you know, had Steve Jobs gone out in the early iPhone days or the early iPod days and said to a focus group, what do you want in a product, you know? Well, back in those days, people would have said, well, we want a disc to spin faster, and we'd like to put more data on it so we could have more music. What was the problem? The problem is that people didn't know what Apple was capable of. People didn't know what the technologists out there could do. So when you believe that you're trying to do something heroic with your business, um, you're, you're willing to I, – I guess my point is that the noble cause becomes bigger than your fears – that would that would hold you back and then and then finally I would say <clears throat> the reason that companies that want to be innovative should define their business as a cause is because innovation is messy right it doesn't it doesn't follow a nice neat linear line from point A to point B there are hiccups there are speed bumps there are starts and false starts and restarts along the way and my question to the would-be innovator is what gives your people the courage to keep pressing on? What gives your people the perseverance to stay with solving a problem that matters when the demons of doubt set in and the critics are firing arrows and you're going, man, I'm not sure if we're doing the right thing? Mm -hmm. My answer to that is if you believe that what you're doing truly can change the world, you stick with it. And that's what separates the innovators from the mediocre. Okay, great, great answer. So let me ask you about the, the book that you and your wife are working on. Uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, it's called Company with a Cause, Live an Insanely Great Life While Doing Meaningful Work. And you were nice enough to share a, a kind of first draft of it with me. And one of the things that you talk about in the book is pretty important. Uh, it's the greatest needs of human existence. So what are some of those greatest needs of human existence that you write about in the book? Well, I think that we are all wired uh, for lives that have meaning, right? I mean, nobody, 
nobody shows up to work every day going, you know, I really don't care about my work. I live for the weekends. I, I live for the two-week vacation every year. Mm-hmm. I mean, people may say that, but at the end of the day, we all wish we could come to work and really believe that our, that our work had, uh, had meaning. Mm-hmm. And I don't think meaning is something that you just find. I think meaning is something you create, and it's created through commitment. I've always said to my friends and even to some of my clients, show me uh, a group of people that have no commitments. You know, I've got friends that are independently wealthy and have been since they were kids, and they really haven't gotten committed to anything. And I'll show you people that really aren't uh, very happy because they don't have any meaning in their lives. But show me somebody that's committed to something, and it could be, you know, committed to, to you know, a lifelong relationship with a spouse. I've been married uh, 27 years, and, and I can tell you that we have more meaning in our relationship today than we did 27 years ago when we thought we were in love. Um, and that's because we've, we've lived out a commitment, right, through thick and thin, through the rough and rocky roads, through the happy and joyful times. And I think the same thing is true in organizations. People, people feel a sense of meaning in their work and connect what they do every day when they believe that their work is committed to something bigger, higher, and, and, and larger. So meaning is one thing that we crave. I think we all closely aligned with that. We all want to live a life that matters. I mean, if you look at some of the great innovators, even some of the great artists in the world, I'm a big fan of Bono, U2. They just, you know, did a creative launch of their brand new album. He has leveraged his celebrity to eliminate extreme poverty in Africa. Herb Kelleher got into the business uh, at Southwest Airlines to democratize the skies. What do these innovators have in common, you know? It's, man, I don't want to hang my spurs up at the end of the day and look back and go, man, did 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 my life matter? And then finally, I, I think one of the greatest needs for all of us is the need to belong. Uh, you got to ask the question, I think, why do we, why do we join uh, the military? Why do we join gangs? Why do we join associations, teams, clubs, faith-based communities, uh, even cults? The answer is because they provide us with a sense of identity and a place to share common aspirations. They create an opportunity for us to connect and be heard. And when we're heard, we feel like we're valued. And when we get to connect with like-minded people who share the same aspirations, who are fighting for the same cause, man, that just makes work that much more enriching. And the problem, Will, is that in most companies, people don't get it. You cite Ernest Becker's work and his book, The The Denial of Death, in your book. And that talks about some pretty deep things, uh, including that our greatest fear in life is not of dying, but of dying without having done anything significant. So that kind of ties back to what you were saying about not wanting to hang up your spurs without really having done anything. Can you talk a little more about that and the concept of heroism, which you mentioned before, and why that's important in the workplace? Yeah, Becker, uh, he's not an easy guy to read. I had to read him three or four times before I ultimately understood it. But when I did, man, it just, it just got under my skin for uh, the last 20 years. Basically, what he's, what he's saying is exactly what you said, that uh, what people fear most in life is not dying. It's dying with a sense of insignificance. It's that, it's that frightening, unsettling feeling you get when you see death you know, lurking over the horizon, either through disease or age or whatever. 
marching its way to your doorstep and you look back over your life and you say, did my life count for anything? Did I, did I make a mark in the world? Did I do anything that was, was supremely meaningful? And, you know, I look at, I lost my dad a, a few years back and he was 83 and I really lost him five years before he died. And I would just tell you that, you know, my dad was never afraid of dying. What bothered my dad was looking back over his life and asking the question, did I, did I treat my wife like she deserved to be treated? Did I make a mark in my law firm? Did I, did I do something in my political career and in the community that enriched the community, that made it better? Those were the questions that my dad was, was wrestling with. And so from Becker's point of view, we all have this will to heroism, and, and heroism isn't defined as, you know, big man on campus or woman on campus. Heroism is defined as doing something meaningful and significant with our lives. He says that all of us, some of us cover it up, some of us are keenly aware of it, but all of us desire to do something heroic with our lives. And boy, that does not shut down when you walk through the corridors at work. Okay, great. And let's, let me ask you, you mentioned Herb Keller before. You have a long history with him and Southwest Airlines. He was one of the founders of Southwest, and Southwest was the subject was the subject of a book that you and Jackie wrote titled Nuts, Southwest Airlines Crazy Recipe for Business and Personal Success. What did you learn in the course of writing Nuts about Southwest Airlines culture and cause? Well, we learned that cause drives culture, and I'll try to explain that. Uh, Herb got into the business... 43-some years ago, to democratize the skies. He basically said, you know, flying at that point in time was for the elite. It was for the wealthy. And he said, gosh, what if we could make flying more affordable to more people so that they could go see and do things that they dream of doing, right? And so they said, we're not just going to compete with other airlines. We're going to compete with ground transportation. And at the time, this was in the early 70s, you could get fares like between Dallas and Houston, which is an hour flight, for $15. I mean, imagine that today, right? So they defined their business as the business of freedom, the freedom to giving the mother or the grandmother on a limited income, the freedom to go see her grandkids three times a year instead of two times a year, the freedom for a uh, husband and wife who are no longer husband and wife to raise their kids so the kids could fly back and forth between, you know, a disenfranchised family. The freedom for a budding entrepreneur in San Diego to fly and oversee your customers and expand her business in Sacramento or San Jose or Phoenix or Tucson. And that was what they, what they fought for. Now, how does that shape culture? Well, in their case, what happened was three major carriers in the very early days, Braniff Continental and Texas International, colluded to uh, conspired to stomp on this little upstart and they had 43 judicial and administrative proceedings all the way to the u.s supreme court before they got in the air because these three carriers said the market's well served thank you we don't need you and if they would have just left them alone southwest probably would have bled to death from its own you know lack of finances but what happened was it spurred Herb Kelleher's egalitarian spirit, and he said, this is not right. We're going to fight this all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. That gave birth to the way they define their culture, and they define their culture very simply. 
It's a warrior spirit, a servant's heart, and a fun-loving attitude. And, you know, if you look at the things that have ensued since their beginning days, you look at 9-11. Southwest was the first carrier to get on the television set three days after 9-11 and say, we are coming back. We are going to come back strong. We're going to fight for America. We're going to continue to fight for freedom. We are not going to let this take us out. And then the other airlines started to rally around them. That's that warrior spirit. And it's pervaded everything they do. So, um, you know, that's how a, a cause in the early days has shaped, driven, if you will, a culture over 43 years. And it's, it's served them pretty well from a business standpoint as well. A Southwest Airlines stock price, last I checked, was up into the 30s after dipping into a low of around or dipping to a low of around five dollars a share in 2009 after the market crash, uh, with a market capitalization now north of 20 billion dollars. So clearly, something in that culture prepares them to be able to bounce back when uh, when things look their bleakest. That's right, and and I'll tell you what, 43 consecutive years of profitability in an industry that has traditionally skated on very very thin ice. Something's going on there worth paying attention to. Yeah, definitely. Okay, great. So let me ask you about how cause or, uh, or or lack thereof, I guess, can hurt culture. So a Gallup study that you mentioned in the book is that 63% of the global workforce is not engaged and 24% is actively disengaged. So what's the major epidemic that you see that has hit a full 87% of the global workforce? Yeah, and you know what's sad, Will, is those statistics haven't changed in, in 15 years uh, much. Uh, mm-hmm. They're really, if you'd have looked at when Gallup first started doing their Q12 study on engagement, the, um, the stats really haven't changed that much. So we're not we're not figuring it out. Um, and I wouldn't be arrogant enough to tell you that this book and this concept is the silver bullet, but I think it is certainly a step in the in the right direction. Uh, my wife calls those people that are actively disengaged dead people working. Um, you know, they show up to work every day, but they show up DOA uh, or dead on arrival. And because they've checked out psychologically and they, you know, they live for the weekends and they live for the vacations and whatnot. Um, you know, what we believe is that we aren't just workers. We aren't just employees. We aren't just careerists who you know, come to work every day. We are human beings that are filled with passions and desires. You know, we, we, I would tell you, I think God planted those in us and didn't expect to, you know, for us to shut them down when we come through the corridors at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but far too many of us, I think, buy into the world's expectations. And what are the world's expectations? Well, you go to college, right? You get a decent degree and a decent major. You get out of college and you get a good paying job so that you can get on with life, right? And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I'm all for accountability and responsibility and taking care of your family and your loved ones. But, you know, what we end up doing is we end up jumping in to things that we're not passionate about, right? So we end up, you know, 20 years into a game where we're in an organization or an industry that isn't fulfilling, and by the time we figure it out, resignation sets in. And what is resignation? Resignation is you just kind of get resigned to the fact that this is the way it's going to be. I got a mortgage. I got a car payment. 
I got to get ready to send kids through college or I'm putting kids through college. And yes, I would like to go back to the idealism of when I got out of college and be in a job that I'm passionate about and fight for a cause that's noble and heroic. But those are the, that's the idealism of youth. And I live in the real world. And so we become resigned to that and we become dead people working. And to Jackie and I, that's just so incredibly sad because we're wasting billions and billions of dollars of people who are part of that actively disengaged workforce. Let me ask you, there are three things you list in the book um, that people have to believe a cause is to truly get behind. And those three things are heroic, which we talked about a little bit before, timeless, which you also talked about, I think, a little bit in your first answer, and supremely meaningful. So can you share an example or two from the corporate world where companies or teams pulled off heroic, timeless, and supremely meaningful feats? Yeah, let me give you two examples, one that's macro and one that's micro, if that makes any sense. We have we have written a book called Nanovation, which um, I've spent, uh, I've had about 12 trips to India over my career, and uh, one of the great companies in India is the Tata Group. Uh, 93 operating companies, $76 billion in revenues. They are one of the crown jewels of Southeast Asia. Uh, 140-year company uh, with incredibly uh, ethical values, just a, a wonderful company. And one of their flagship companies is Tata Motors. And Ratan Tata, the, the chairman, basically was coming home from Bangalore one night in the, in the middle of a, a monsoon, a rainstorm, he said to his driver, he said, please be careful, it could be very slippery. They got out in the rain. And if you, if you witness uh, the way people travel in India and in many third world countries, um, one of the things you will see is families of four, five, and six riding the same motorcycle at the same time, or the same motor scooter. Well, they had a family in front of them, pouring rain. They got, you know, five on the motorcycle. They go around a bend, the motorcycle goes down, and the family's all over the street. Fortunately, nobody was injured uh, severely, but Rattan said, you know, at that point in time, it was an epiphany for me because he said, I'd been doodling on the idea of could we create, could we design a car, a safe, affordable form of transportation that would cost slightly more than what that family is going to pay to buy a brand new motorcycle? went to the auto manufacturers and the motorcycle manufacturers and said, this is an Indian problem. Let's solve it. Let's fix this. And, of course, everybody said, you're nuts. It can't be done. Well, I, I don't want to belabor the story, but the long story short is with, against all of the better judgment of the auto industry, they created a little car called the Nano for 2500 U.S. dollars. My wife and I have driven it on the test tracks. It seats five. It's got more room in the back seat than my daughter's Mini Cooper. And if you look at what's going to happen, 100,000 people die every year in India alone in auto-related accidents, most of them on two-wheelers. If he can put a dent in just 5% of that and then extrapolate that to Brazil, to Sri Lanka, to Russia, to Mexico, to South Africa, to other developing countries around the world, this is an innovation that was heroic because nobody thought it could be done and will literally change lives. And by the way, when they started this project, 
shortly after they started it and they put the price point in the, in the stake in the ground, the global economy tanked and materials costs went up by 40%. That would give most CEOs an out to say, all bets are off, we've got to reestablish our price point. Not with, with, not with Rattan. Rattan said, you know what, a promise is a promise, we're going to keep it. It just means we're going to have to be more innovative and leverage more ingenuity and be more creative in building this product. So that's a, you know, that's a heroic uh, sort of macro uh, example. Uh, and I have a micro one if you want it. Of course. Uh, I just did this project for Vail Resorts, and I'm pretty uh, excited about what they're doing. And uh, they were telling me about um, a ski instructor at Heavenly Valley, which is one of their one of their ski resorts in the Lake Tahoe area, beautiful ski resort. You look out over Lake Tahoe; it's absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. Ski instructor comes in about two o'clock, will in the afternoon, and it's cold. And he's tired, and he's kind of thinking, you know, I'm ready to go home. And the head of ski school says, you know what? We've got a private for you if you want it, two-hour private. It's with a guy that's never been skied, never skied before, and he's from Texas, and he's in his early 80s. <laughs> you know, this guy's going, oh, man, I, I want to go home. <laughs> Probably not your out. ideal first-time skier. Yeah, right, right. You know, and he's going, oh, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> he gets the guy out on the bunny hill, right, and, and they're, they're about an hour into it, and he says to the guy, he says, so what do you, what do you think? How you doing? And he goes, I'm okay. You know, well, if you're paying attention, I'm okay is not a really great response, right? And he says, well, what's wrong? He says, well, I just, it isn't what I expected. And he says, what do you mean? He says, well, I just expected to be able to see more. And, you know, of course, the ski instructor's going, dude, you are a first-time skier. You are on the bunny hill. We're not going to the top of the mountain your first day, right? And the guy says, yeah, I just, I guess I just expected to see more. Well, long story short. This ski instructor owns the experience, right? He goes to the lift operators and says, could we take uh, George to the top of the hill? You know, we'll just get off, we'll look around, and then we'll ride the lift back down. They get up to the top of Heavenly. They look out over the beauty of the lake and everything, and this guy starts crying. And the ski instructor, uh, Scott Dickey, says, George, what's wrong? He said, it's just so beautiful. It's just gorgeous. He says, well, George, surely you've been, you know, you've seen other places that are equally as beautiful. He said, I've never been out of Texas. I've never done anything like this. And uh, they get back on the lift and they start down, and it turns out that George has a terminal disease and only has two months to live. And one of his bucket list items was to get to the top of a ski mountain and look out over the beauty. And Scott Dickey said, man, he's crying, I'm crying. He said it was one of the best days of his life. And then Scott Dickey said, and it was one of the best days of mine as well. Now, if you think about what Vail Resort stands for, creating an experience of a lifetime, that's the heroic noble cause they fight for. All of a sudden, this ski instructor just got a direct line of sight between what he does every day and that ultimate noble cause. And if you can create that with people, that is extremely powerful. 
And that that is powerful. Um, and yes, I'm, I'm glad I said yes to wanting to hear the micro example because that's uh, that's fantastic stuff. Uh, so so let me ask you, Dr. Freiberg. Uh, we've talked a, a lot about the book, uh, and I know this is this is not the first book uh, that that you and your wife have written. Is there a, is there a pub date on the horizon for the book that listeners out there who may be interested in it can pick it up? I know it's in a in a kind of a first draft form, but do you have a, a pub date on the horizon? I would say the uh, first uh, right after the new year, we will release uh, the the version of this book that we want to go public. So uh, I would say you know. Right after New Year's, take uh, be looking for it. So, uh, so everybody, keep your eyes peeled for the book coming out uh, early in 2015. Dr. Freiberg, running a little low on time. Do you have any final parting words of wisdom for listeners out there looking for ways to help their company find its cause and thereby drive innovation? I suppose there's one thing, Will, that I would that we haven't talked about that I would simply just touch on, and that is. We've talked about the employee aspect of this. I think there's a consumer aspect of this that your listeners should pay attention to, uh, we should all pay attention to, and that is that people will buy for a cause. And what we've learned is that people don't buy products. They don't buy services. They don't buy experiences. They buy better versions of themselves. When I buy coffee from a place that doesn't engage in slave labor, when I buy clothes from a manufacturer that doesn't use sweatshops, uh, when I buy toxic-free products that are healthy for my family, I look in the mirror and what do I see? I see a better version of me. And you know what? That feels good. Uh, I think your listeners would probably know about Tom's shoes today. Uh, I still haven't quite figured this out, Will. My wife and my daughters are into this. I haven't figured out how you pay 60 to to $100 for um, canvas straps glued to a thin rubber sole. And yet people do, and the reason they do is because every time they buy a pair of Tom's shoes, a shoe, a pair of shoes is donated to a kid in a third-world country that's been walking to school in bare feet, getting parasites, getting disease, and then not being able to go to school. And so when people buy a pair of Tom's shoes, they look in the mirror, and what do they see? They see a better version of themselves. And I think we're slowly, uh, not slowly, I think we are quickly approaching a time where if you have a widget and I have a widget, and your widget is defined as a cause, and mine's simply a widget, and they perform about the same and they're priced about the same, people are going to buy from you, not me. And the reason is because when they look in the mirror, they'll see a better version of themselves. So I think there's a powerful reason to define your business as a cause. And, and by the way, just to end this, uh, we're not talking about supporting a cause. That's good. I mean, most companies today through corporate social responsibility feel the need to uh, support a cause. You know, So I may support the Ronald McDonald House, or I may support something going on in Africa to eliminate poverty. Cool. Very cool. What we're talking about in this book and what we think consumers are going to buy into in the future is a company that is a cause, a company that defines itself in terms of a cause. And we think that um, there's a powerful reason for doing that. Okay, great. Well, a great note to close on. Uh, thanks so much for the wisdom and the advice, Dr. Freiberg, and thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, thanks as well to your wife, Jackie, for coming on the podcast last week. You bet. Thank you for having us, and uh, our best to you. 
If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Kevin Freiberg, you can visit his and his wife Jackie's website at freibergs.com. That's F-R-E-I-B-E-R-G-S.com. Their latest book, Do Something Now, is available on Amazon.com and in bookstores around the country. Thanks again to Dr. Freiberg for joining us this week, and thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode when we're excited to have Lisa Bodell, CEO of FutureThink, on the podcast to talk about how to start an innovation revolution within your company. Why the era we're living in calls for radical new ways of running a business. Why you should regularly kill the processes or habits that make the least sense. And why haters can actually be one of your company's most valuable resources. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.